Hello, welcome to the Wholehearted Podcast. Today's conversation is with John W. Gehring, author of Tales of Love and Service, Stories from the Heart. John has worked on service, education, and sports programs in more than 60 countries. His Stories from the Heart explore the everyday lives and challenges of parts of humanity that are often overlooked. John hopes his experiences will inspire you on your life's journey to transcend the things that divide us and discover new connections and friendships. We hope you enjoy. Hello, my name is Heather Talheimer. I'm a co-founder of Wholehearted. Wholehearted is a community for personal growth. We help people stop obsessing over achieving more and start living from a place of wholeness. And we do it together. It's in that spirit of doing life together that I've invited a good friend of mine, John Gehring, author of Tales of Love and Surface, Stories from the Heart, into a wholehearted conversation. So welcome, John. (laughs) Hello, everyone. Welcome. Thank you, Heather, for inviting me and letting me connect wholeheartedly with more people. Oh, yeah. It's our pleasure to have you on the show today. So we are here today to talk about your newly released book, Tales of Love and Service, Stories from the Heart. I've been very moved um, by you over the years, John, because I've known you through various service projects. And I got to say that um, I've been moved because I see how transformed your own heart has been through the projects, the service projects that you've participated in. You know, you come always come across as someone who is so sincere and most importantly to me, so humble. Like uh, one of the important things for me is to break down the barriers between people. And I've seen you do that over and over again, not just here in America in service projects, but all around the world. So this book is just a delight for me to read and to experience. And you know, just for our listeners, I want to read out some of the chapter titles because they immediately drew me in, like, what is that chapter about? For instance, there's one chapter called Buckets of Teeth or Death as a Less Terrible Alternative. And I hope you can speak about that one today because that was really, I was thinking about the content of that chapter for days after I read it. Our human family, the heart of wanting to be together, Another chapter, this is why I hate you. And, you know, that's such a kind of stark title for a chapter, but so important if we want to build connection between people, we have to start with where we're at. Another chapter, a dream deferred, but not forever. Or the man who spoke with his shovel and the politics of a mother's heart, Mama Betty style. You know, you have such intriguing chapter names. It just caused me to like dive in. And I have to confess, John, I didn't read this book in a linear way. I didn't start at the beginning and finish at the end. I was like, I got to read this. I got to read that. So um, but it's, it was um, each story has so much to think about. And I'm thinking as the author, like, what's, what's a story that jumps out for you? in this book? You know, one story I really enjoyed was the um, one cups of coffee 
dealing mm. with that. And the reason, this was a story that took place in a refugee camp or displaced people's camp. Basically the UN ran it in uh, Croatia, which was at war at that time with, in the Southern Croatia with Bosnian and Croatian refugees, people were fighting. Families were split, split apart. They, they were moving and they didn't know if their families were, members were dead or alive, those that stayed behind. So it was that kind of a nervous situation. And we were in a refugee camp and it was almost all old people or very young people. You're looking around and where's the people, uh, <laughs> where are the, those strong younger people, young adults, they were still at home because they were defending their homes and um, from possible uh, attack. And the people in the camp, they didn't know if they would ever see their family again, the, the other family members, the father, the eldest son, those kind of people in their family. And uh, the kids, the young people, they were college students mostly, they're around 19, 21 years old. And they, they came and they're wondering, what am I going to do? These people have suffered so much. They've gone through so many, what can I give? I, I, all I, I mean, I could paint a room, I could do some, some external things, but I, I don't think I'll be able to be, relate with these people because they've, they are, they have no life in a, in a way that as a young person, I don't. So that was the conversation as we began the project at, the, at this refugee camp. But we, we spent that time at the camp. We ate with people. We basically spent all the time there with, these, uh, with the refugees who we just looked at as try to make a relationship. We couldn't speak very much, but our actions had to speak. And people were sincerely trying their best. You, you had a, a big room that you had 15 families lived in. So how can you make that more livable? And how can you fix the toilets? And how can we make a little classroom out of, uh, out of this area so the kids have some, some place to go and learn? So as our group worked on this project, it was, you know, a day would pass and, and another day. And then some old lady old lady she looked old but she probably wasn't so old because uh, her ex life experience made her look the way she did yeah. she came up to to me and she said you know do you want a cup of coffee do you want some coffee and uh, I said yes and my friend Adam was with me and Adam said yes I, I you know we'd like a cup of coffee and this the lady went went away to make the coffee but we, we couldn't speak directly. You know, we didn't speak each other's language, but Adam happened to look, uh, he was part Turkish. Actually, he was Turkish. And, and there is a mixture of Bosnian, the Turks controlled that part of the world. So uh, this Adam happened to resemble her son in some way. So she felt a deep connection to Adam. We waited and they took, they took time. I didn't realize how long it would take to make the coffee. And uh, all we had a break going on at that time, but the time for the break was over. So everybody else went back to work, to, to have their break somewhere else, have it a snack, have the, that away from where we were. So what happened was uh, she, just Adam and I waited and she came out with this big, 
pot of coffee. And you know, Turkish coffee, uh, it's really, really strong. <laughs> you know, it's, these little cups. <clears throat> so we went through the a ritual. We've decided, Adam and I looked at each other, that we were going to drink this for representing the whole team. So we went through one cup, the other. And while we're going through this process, the lady starts to talk and she starts to share. And uh, then her neighbor brings out another coffee pot because she anticipated that the whole group would be there. So we had to go through two coffee pots of this coffee. We didn't have wow. to, but the, but the beauty of it was she started talking about, you know, we haven't seen our husband and we haven't seen our son and, uh, in, in, in months, but we, we feel that they're, we haven't heard from them, but we feel they're alive. We feel they're, you know, we feel they're alive. And she started sharing, they started talking as much as they could communicate. And um, we finished the, the coffee. We paid the consequences for it with our digestion later, but <laughs> they, they warmed up from the give and take, from, from being able to receive their love. Yeah. You know, instead of like, oh, we made the coffee and nobody cared. We, mm -hmm. we, we gave it to them and then they could share their heart. And then they began to share more with other participants. And uh, at the, we went through that ritual and then every day they ended up bringing their coffee. They had meager, meager rations there. I mean, it was hard to get a, a, a full meal. But um, what happened through that process is that the last day they made a cake for us to celebrate our, 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 our time there. And the one woman goes, you know, we thought everybody had left, everybody forgot about us. People come and they bring things, but they just put it at our doorstep and leave. Whether we need it or not, they bring it. Now, some companies have extra this or that. They, you know, okay, we'll give it to the refugees and we'll make it a tax write-off. But you stayed with us, you ate with us, you, you, communicated with our, with, with our children. We forgot, we could forget about the war. This was the first time we could forget about the war. Wow. So if you're a 21-year-old college student who's just come because you wanted to do something good and you have these people turn around and talk to you and say, you made us forget about our suffering the cause of our suffering and pain. You, you gave us a hope. You showed that we were not forgotten. Mm. That was really, um, that mm. was behind the coffee cups. It was, it was worth the diarrhea, whatever. <laughs> you know. So uh, little, little times it seems insignificant in, in to, you know, accept somebody's offering but it was the, their heart and then they were able we were able to answer our were self-doubt so many young people we came there and I wasn't so young then but we all came and we had self-doubts is this going to work is this going to be good and to have it be able to be confirmed with those words we forgot about the war we, we had we we realized we weren't abandoned we had hope hmm. that's precious I don't know if it came across in the writing, but that's a little bit of the story behind the story. That's, um, that's beautiful to hear that. And also the emphasis, it's all about relationship because, you know, we can give things, but, you know, what lasts forever is relationship. And I'm sure that those people still remember you as you remember them. It's, it's beautiful. And, 
And a wonderful thing was within a year, the fighting had stopped and they could go back home. Now, whether they're who was alive and what the situation was, but they were able to go back home. Mm. There was peace. Fortunate. Wow. Oh, can, can you tell me a little bit about the story? Um, death is a less terrible alternative because that's that's a heavy that's one. one. That's a heavy <laughs> one. But um, you know, sometimes it's uh, good to be heavy. We have to think about life, and uh, it's easy cocooned in our own reality not to think about life. And that's one of the things I so appreciated about this book is, you know, there were stories of hope and joy, but also there were stories that caused me to confront, um, yeah, what's going on in people's lives right now? And to actually embrace like that, think about that, be part of that. We're part of it, but we just aren't in touch with the fact that we're part of it. So um, yeah, if you could share a little bit of that story, that would be great. In that first part of the book or second chapter, mm. uh, there's a lot of stories that deal with what I call lady poverty. Mm. And that's the kind of, it unveils her face of what, how many starving children, how many, uh, how much suffering disease and, and different things exist and how lady poverty, you know, poverty is, can stop people's lives. And, and just put them in a, in, in a box. Mm. So uh, this story opened my eyes. I was, uh, this was my first international service project, RYS. I went to the Philippines. We stayed in a village. And uh, in that village, there was Muslims and Christians and mostly Christians, but the Muslims lived on the other side of the, the river. And we were building a little bridge with the university, technical university's students to connect both sides of the, the river so kids could go to school easier, easier and they could have more access to each other. And in that, uh, in that process, while we were working, uh, we had a group in that site was maybe 20 nations. Our volunteers were from 20 nations. We were Sikh, we were Muslim, we were Christians, we were Jews, we were, we really were the world there. And so the, the village is kind of, where did these people come from? How come they're coming here from Bangladesh or from India and, and doing this, this work? But uh, this, while we were doing our work, we, we enjoyed uh, coffee breaks or breaks with snacks and food and, uh, kids would hang around, kids from, uh, first from the Christian side, because it was closer, but then kids from both sides started hanging around watching us because we were such a curiosity. So this story was about some of those children really stayed around because we had some snacks and mm -hmm. they, you know, we were friendly and we, we let them go, <laughs> but some were really kind of abandoned kids and, they, and we didn't understand what their real situation was. But, um, we heard from uh, one, a couple of our participants like to go into the little community and talk to the mothers and really find out what was going on. And we found out this one family, the kids, the, they used to come and watch us, but uh, they, were, they were really, really uh, struggling with, with hunger. And we found out about that, but we found out like after hearing that uh, 
the mother's child had died of hunger. And uh, we all reacted with shock because this was yeah. a couple of hundred yards away. We have uh, somebody starving to death while we're having our doing this and that and having our meals. And, uh, and the, the kind of thing that happened as in a response was, um, well, we went, to, we went to the wake. We all gathered and we, we wanted to say goodbye. And we had one, one person was from Burkina Faso. He was a strong Christian and he, he felt that, you know, Jesus prayed to raise the dead. I can pray and raise this child from the dead. If, if I really have faith, I can do it. So we're at the wake and he asked to pray for this child. And he's praying in French and he's praying fervently and it's hot and there's all these people crowded in this little room and he's praying to raise the child from the dead. And we're, we're, some of us go, well, I don't think this is going to happen. Right. <laughs> you know, what can we say? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But the key part was he's praying and then he turns around and he asks his the child's mother, can I continue to pray? And the mother says, no. And the room turns silent. Wow. He asks, can I, can I pray? No, because if he comes back again, if he comes to life, there's still no food. And then we found the story behind the story. The mother to keep the baby from crying and crying from stomach pains would moisten newspaper and give, to give the baby some moistened newspaper to dull the pain of hunger. Wow, wow. So, we were shocked. All of, you know, kind of our worldviews just boom, got, got knocked out. This is the reality where the mother who should have so much hope and look at a child for this is the hope of the future. This, this is the blessing. They have so many things that they can experience in life, love, marriage, uh, their own children. Instead, I just hope his misery ends. Mm -hmm. That's you know, that is the reverse of what it should be. That's lady poverty. Yeah. The, the, the killer. So, uh, hey, coming, if you're coming from Germany and the United States and you hear this kind of, you see this and experience it, your concept of money changes. Your concept right. of, of, you know, do I really need this? Do I need that? Mm -hmm. You know, and a, a level of appreciation, at least it's in your mind that wasn't there before. Mm -hmm. This wow. is, uh, so they kind of knocked, knocked us for a loop, that's for sure. But uh, yeah, so that's, that's the, the yeah. story, a little bit of the story behind the story there. Uh, it, um, yeah, it really impacted me. I, I thought about that for days and, you know, you understand a parent's heart is to want their child to live, but then a parent's heart is also, I don't want my child to suffer. And to know the suffering of that child that she experienced every day as she fed him. And the tragedy is it wasn't just there. It was in right. so many other villages, so many other countries. And, uh, and wake up. This is yeah. reality. You know, what can we do? You know, what is my responsibility? It's not, you know, if I can't help that one, who can I help? What can I do? To mm -hmm. make it a little bit, you know, make it a little bit better, this world. Yeah. No, I really appreciate that story. Another thing I appreciate about that story is it really expressed who, um, you mentioned RYS, Religious Youth Service, um, who Religious Youth Service is because it brings together 
people from all over the world, different um, religious and cultural traditions. And even that's part of the experience because, you know, you need to break down those barriers. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with RYS? Oh, they're all different ones. The first image <laughs> that pops up in my mind is this Sikhs. Sikh yeah. participant in the Philippines. And we had one young uh, Christian or church member who wanted the, the Sikh not to carry his uh, knife and he wanted to cut it, him to have his hair cut because he thought this was the proper way to look. And then uh -huh. <laughs> he, the Sikh explained to him, you know, the significance of these, these things. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and as you watch the Sikh participants throughout the project, they set such a good example of hard work and, and really their, their love for God and their love for family. But we, we had to open up our minds and hearts to that looks were not what decided who we were. We're, we're with a, a Bangladesh doctor who's making the bridge and yet uh, he, he's a doctor back home, but he's coming to this place to serve the poor people here. Uh, he's a, Mus a Muslim doctor, and then there we saw Palestinian and Israeli Jews and Arabs mm -hmm. come together. They couldn't come and have these conversations or these experiences back home, but the uh, but we had a neutral place for them to really learn who they were, who mm -hmm. each other was. Part of our our situation is to where put into boxes where, wherever we are at. You know, if you're living in a white community and you go to a black community, or if you're living in an integrated community and you go to an all something community, it's, you feel kind of some dissonance. Yeah. But uh, all of a sudden, if you're working together for some, some purpose, this is the phenomena that happened. People came together, the first feeling you have in your heart is you wanna embrace everybody. Oh, this, this person's from this part of the world. I never, I never knew anybody from Palau. I never knew anybody from uh, uh, Czechoslovakia. But then after the embracing feeling, you go, but, but the guy doesn't, doesn't clean his socks. He's, his underwear is on his bed and it smells, you know, like, you know, how are we going to live together? This, this meeting was supposed to start on time at eight o'clock and it's 825 and they're walking in like it's, uh, you know, on time. They, yeah. they don't have the same concept of time, you know, whoever they are. You uh -huh. know? So we start noticing these and then there becomes a tension, you know, between uh -huh. living together. But what keeping our focus on two things, like our original reason to come, our, you know, often it was because of our faith and our love for God, love for humanity, we're here. And also our task, our task is to help these people. We're supposed to build a medical clinic. If we don't work together, it's not gonna get done. So that other person is also working on that project. We need each other and we're working together to do something. And we all want to see it accomplished. And when it is accomplished, we all share in that victory, that feeling. So uh, a lot of things got broken down through the working, mm -hmm. sleeping together, eating together. And, uh, and then sit and, sit and talk. Why do you, what, you know, this, that one chapter is called, and this is why I hate you. This is what happened with uh, Belial and, and, and Ezra. Just Ezra is trying to make some kind of conversation with Belial, and who's from Jordan, and 
he gets all these short, curt answers, like, I don't want any part of you. And finally, uh, Balal says, Ezra asks Balal, do you hate me? And, 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 and Balal said, yes, I hate you. And this is why. And for like a half an hour, he's telling, this is what, the, this is what the, you did to my people. They, they, they lived in what his dad lived in, what was, is today Israel. You know, you drove them out, you did this, you did this and that. And the kind of conceptions and, and reality of, of their growing up now was faced with a new reality. They were roommates and they were working on something together. Mm. How is this gonna? How is this gonna work? These two are gonna be at their throats and killing each other by the time the pro project's over. But they both were very responsible men, and they both worked to the best. Belial, when he worked, this is my offering to God, doing this kind of service. And Ezra is trying to help people. So over time, as time passed, uh, we spent six weeks together. And at the end, we have a, a reflective, reflective time. And we went to a pilgrimage. We went to a pilgrimage for St. Francis in Assisi, Italy. Oh, wow. And while we're there, and Francis, Francis, um, St. Francis had actually made an outreach to, to the uh, Mideast, to the Muslim countries. And he mm -hmm. tried to make, make bridges between uh, Islam and Christianity. And while, while we were in... Assisi, we asked a Catholic priest, is it okay? Our group is from all these religions. And you could see there's one's wearing a yarmulke. This one, yeah. you know, is, it, is this okay? And, and he said, no, this is what Francis wanted. This was Francis's dream. So we're carrying our candles, 120 people from all different, 36 countries, all different faiths, and uh, celebrating, celebrating uh, this kind of one heartness, mm. sharing one heart. We got into the, the village square of Assisi and we started, uh, we had Reverend Al, Al started singing, we are the children, children of the living God. And he's singing this. And all of a sudden we start running, going around in a circle, dancing. And our RYS people are dancing in the middle of the square in Assisi. And then the villagers come in and they're dancing. We are the children. We are the children of the living God, of the living God. And they're singing and dancing. And when the song ends, they're jumping up, they continue, and they're jumping up and down. They just feel the love and the unity. And wow. it was later that night, it's when I talked to uh, Ezra, and Ezra said, you know, Bilal and I, we never could have done this back home, but actually we became uh, not just friends, we became brothers through this mm -hmm. experience together. Yeah, good. you're kind of free, like outside of your environment, more free maybe to... Um, embrace something that's different. I, I'm really curious, John, like uh, as a person of faith yourself, how has working with RYS impacted your own individual faith or has it? I'm sure it has, but I had one experience. I have one friend, Devendra. He was with me in the Philippines and we worked together in other countries. But you know, I'd work hard and I think I'm doing so good, you know, and it's it's 11 o'clock at night and I'm going, I make a quick peek into the chapel and there's Devendra meditating, getting ready for the next day. And then the morning early, he go by when we're just starting to get moving and Devendra's there. 
thinking, praying, being who he is. Yeah. And, um, oh, I, I got to be more like Bhittabendra. Mm. <laughs> you know, and then I'm sure other people, we look at good examples, role models, and they're not from our group. They're from somewhere else. What makes them so good? What makes them? Oh, I want to know more about them. Every, every morning we started with a, a worship, but we worshiped each participant could, if they were, if they were Muslim, they, they'd lead us in some kind of, uh, some kind of morning service together. And then the next day it would be from Israel or it would be the Hindu or it would be the Buddhist. So we can learn something about where they were coming from. And in one sense, taste a little bit of their experience or at least yeah. begin to recognize the symbols behind it. Yeah. Understanding yeah. symbols is really important. I mean, you look at say there's some Indian art and it's like, what the heck is this? And then, mm-hmm. oh, this is what this stands for. And this is why the elephant is doing this. And this is why, you know, then, oh, okay. They didn't, uh, the regular people in that time, they weren't educated in school. So the art spoke to them, the message. There was, this was the language. The way they could teach was through temple art and things like that. Anyway, there's so much you, we can discover through others that all of a sudden our God becomes greater. As the Muslims have like 99 words for God. God is greater than this. God is greater than that. For me, I'd left, I would leave every project knowing that God is greater. His love is greater. His care, his compassion, his creativity, mm. all these things. God is greater. You think, you think this is good? There's something even greater behind it. Wow. Yeah, that's very profound. Thank you for sharing that. Um, You know, one chapter that stood out for me is the heart of wanting to be together. And that's a beautiful chapter. And I could really connect to that chapter because I'd done my own service work on the island nation of Vanuatu, which is in the South Pacific. And uh, it's a very, at that time, especially, you know, you could go to the capital, but you couldn't visit beyond the capital, except with some kind of special permission because they tried to keep uh, the island peoples kind of, you know, keep their privacy, keep their way of life actually. Mm -hmm. And so I had incredible experiences. We were doing service projects, but I realized um, through an experience at the airport after leaving Vanuatu that the most profound um, impact I had made was actually on my own way of being, my own heart. Uh, I was there for six weeks. I'd, you know, my family was back home. I had two little children. And when I got to, when I flew from Vanuatu to LA, there was um, a 12 hour layover that I hadn't anticipated. There'd been a delay because of weather in Chicago. And so I was stuck in an airport for 12 hours. Now, while I was in Vanuatu working with the people of Vanuatu, who have a very distinct look, you know, characteristic as a, you know, as a people. Uh, I'd worked hard. I'd tried to kind of push down all my longing to be home and see my kids and just invest in the project. But when I was suddenly faced with this 12-hour period in the airport with nothing but longing to be home, it was kind of like that moment where you kind of you know, fall apart, as it were. And I was really like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? 
And I went into a lounge and I was just sitting in the lounge, you know, having some refreshments. And there were a couple of guys up at the bar who were, they turned around, they were clearly from their facial features from Vanuatu. And when I saw that, when I saw them, it's like my heart leapt <laughs> in the way that your heart leaps when you see a lover. Like in my heart, I really felt like my heart leapt to see them. And in that moment, I realized I'd built a bridge between myself and the people of another nation that before I didn't care about because I didn't know them. I didn't have any contact. I didn't know them as people. And yet by doing that time in Vanuatu and then coming back, and it's true today, if I ever see anyone who looks vaguely like someone from Vanuatu, it's like my heart leaps. And I, through that, I understood the power of service to break down barriers between people and how important it is that we enter into each other's lives, not necessarily because I have so much more and I have stuff to give to you, although on a material level, that is often the case. But it's as a human being, I want to encounter you. I want to know who you are. I want to experience you as a brother or sister. And uh, the um, person that I was connected to in the service project there, he kind of reminds me of you a little bit because he spent so many years in service to peoples in you know, Southeast Asia. And you know that spirit is there once you've really met people on a totally different level. I wanted to read, if you don't mind, <clears throat> I have to find it, um, just a um, quote from your book, which really struck me. You said, um, as my experience in India have many times reminded me, it is often the young spiritually minded believer who can best grasp that all are valued members of one human family. That commonality is beyond any specific religious identity since it points to a transcendent source, a source that we are all connected to. And then later on, you went on to say, a crisis can trigger substantial personal reflection. I, I, I do recognize that as true. You said, our meeting during a time of social turbulence in India provided an atmosphere where each participant could more seriously examine their own lives. And, and this particular quote really struck me because I felt like we're at that time in America too. There's so much turbulence. Yes. There's so much um, division and suffering. And talk about lady poverty. Lady, lady poverty doesn't just live in other countries. Mm -hmm. Lady poverty lives here in the U.S. And I just wondered um, what your thoughts are for um, service in the United States um, and the role that it could play at this time. Everyone's been so separated from, by COVID as well. And I think even being separated during COVID has caused people to self-reflect. I was helping with a kids camp this summer and I noticed that compared to other years, more children presented actually with anxiety and depression than in prior years. And I, I thought that's really a reflection of COVID I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on the role of service to address some of the issues in America at this time. I think it's absolutely necessary. I mean, how can we heal without service? We expect the government to heal us. Mm. <laughs> how are we going to heal? We need, we have to uh, get out of ourselves. 
and and really have relationships with others. And uh, a service can do that if we're if we have something that's more important than us, some cause. Okay, we're work. There's children in a children's hospital. They would love to have music. Okay, uh, let's create something for them. Who, who, where are we going to get from? Well, let's get the voices, you know, let's ask for volunteer singers or do, you know, ask if we have a need and, and, and people will respond for, as long as we get the word out. It's almost like, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, what I want to say is in, in, in the United States today, even having a, a project with, with having Republicans and Democrats working together. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, even on a simple level, like something that's bigger than your politics. I, my political views are so different than a lot of my closest friends that I've worked with together on RYS. We live together, we work together, we serve together. We don't have to have the same political viewpoints, but this, you see, we share a heart and that heart is bigger than our differences. And actually, maybe you know something that I don't know, and maybe I have something to give you that you, you're not aware of. And I think there's no absolutely wrong or absolutely correct side. Mm-hmm. We, we have something to learn from the others, and, and there's kind of like a middle way that draws from both left and the right. And, uh, you know, compassionate service can be great, but it, uh, if the service is not leading to something that's... Uh, great, then it, uh-huh. it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing great work. You know, uh, I, I feel like in America today, it's like anger and re- you did this or this kind of resentment or starting to classify people by uh, skin tone. You know, we, everybody looks like, like you say, in the, in there, you saw somebody who reminded you of the place where your heart was and yeah. wanted to. And mm-hmm. We need we need to in America today, statistically, Muslims and Christians, a lot of times they're not talking. They're not even talking. So let's go to an imam and let's go to a priest and a, and a minister and let's go to a Sikh leader and ask, can we have can we have some of your young people? Can we work on the, in this community here? Because there's a, there's a need. Can we work together? I think the religious community is falling short. I don't care what title you wear. You know, mm-hmm. are we working with the others? Showing that we're not really, God so loved the world. <laughs> Everybody's in this world. And right. no matter you're religious or not religious, there's a need. How can we take care of those that are hurting? Is there a way we can do it? And if we do it together, it's much more powerful than doing it separately. Right. So yeah. it's great to get your own personal experience, but when we work together, all of a sudden we learn from each other and we grow and we become more creative, more, more we bring better results. Mm-hmm. So we, we as a country are not bringing the kind of result to the world that we want to show the world. Mm-hmm. How can we bring the result, the result that comes from working together, cooperating, living to the highest, our highest ideal. Our highest ideal is not material ideal. It's not we're great because we're rich. Yeah. We got to be great because we're good. Mm -hmm. So whoever, whatever title you want to wear, whatever, you know, um, this this race or this religion or this culture, no, I want to see 
who you are by what you do, how you, how you treat others. So I, I think uh, in a sense, people leaving churches because leaving their religions often because they don't see relevance. If you want the people to come back, you have to be relevant. And it's not simply relevant politically, it's deeper. It's relevant by living, I would call it like a Christ-like life, mm -hmm. where you can be really, you can wash the feet of your disciples. Are we washing people's, are we doing that kind of thing of washing their feet of, of those that we, uh, that are different? I mean, are we even shaking hands? The story in India was there was riots going on in other parts of town and we had a group where they were Hindu and Muslim and other faiths and they were talking and sharing and they were so happy to be able to share with each other. And they were so excited. They knew it was dangerous once it got dark to go home, but they didn't want to go home. They just wanted to keep mm -hmm. on sharing that kind of excitement. Mm -hmm. So when... I, my idea is that we've, for years, we hear complaints about how this inner city is this way or this. Let's have people from the inner city and from the suburbs work together, step one, then have them go to reservations and work with our Native American brothers and sisters and learn about their culture, receive wisdom from their culture, and then be able to offer what we can in, with, from our heart and care. And we start making bonds and build relationships and end the, the loneliness in people's lives. Young people can be so lonely. Right. But where are they going to get the support they need? From a gang? Or are we, we as good men and women going to go out and work together, share and learn? Mm -hmm. We are a family. We are family. We may have some brothers and sisters that are a little bit better or a little bit smarter or a little bit this and a little bit that different but we're one family and right. we come from the same source so how can we show that demonstrate with our lives so i have a lot of good friends from all different religions all different cultures and <laughs> it's just beautiful wow. <laughs> and we're having an alumni meeting on uh, yeah. next week. So like we're getting worldwide, we're doing a, a virtual alumni meeting with these people that first over 30 years of service projects, 35 years we were doing it every year. So we're getting together, uh, trying to put together on our own a virtual uh, alumni meeting next next Saturday, next Sunday. That will be some meeting. I'm, I'm so excited for you, John. And for all you do and all you've contributed over the years and also for the wisdom that you've shared with us today, because, um, you know, just in the passion that you speak and your heart, I can tell that this isn't just an intellectual idea about service or it's not coming from a place of this is a good strategy, but it's really coming from the heart. So I'd like to ask you in closing, uh, it's a question we ask every guest. Um, what does it mean to you to be wholehearted? or to live wholeheartedly? You may get a little uh, one-track minded. <laughs> I mean, for like 10 years when I was really doing RYS, people were like, can you talk about something else? You know, <laughs> you know? and then I had one close friend, I mean, just kept on talking to Carol Povetz, this one mm. wonderful sister, you know, you know, you really, this experience of working together with different people and, 
She said, yeah, John, that's your thing. I have my thing. I do my art. I do this. Then she went to a project and then she got the same kind of <laughs> excitement, <laughs> and, you know, and then she shaped it in her image. She does yeah. art projects with service through art and, and through and different kind of things that come from her heart. So losing yourself into something is a liberation to be able to do that. And of course, uh, for me, the, it's rooted in the family. I went away from my kids a lot during those times. So God has a way of getting back. So I'm a grand, <laughs> so I'm a grandfather and I've been living for the last, uh, we had five grandkids. And since the first one was born, we've been living with our grandchildren and moving from one, from one mama to the other mama's house and living with them. But it's a chance that I spend more time with their kids than they, than they do. So it's wow. a time I, wear, I miss birthdays, I miss this, I miss that. So I'm getting a chance to um, give. give. Yeah. And, and then I find being a grandparent, uh, it's almost like the completion of love for me at this stage of my life, like some level of heart because you're like God in a sense. God can't jump in everybody's life and manage you like a parent. Mm. because you have parents because they're like God to you, to the children in a sense there's uh, where's God God is your mama and your daddy when you're a baby mm. but, and but God's like a grandfather he's sitting on the couch if you really need him he'll get off the couch and he'll <laughs> he'll <laughs> offer some words of advice but you need your mama and papa so I feel like uh as a grandparent <laughs> I'm not the mama and papa but I can see their joy and I can experience that their love and struggles and challenges through the loving my children and the grandchildren. It's, it's beautiful. You see, it's a beautiful place to be in life. Wow. So, I'm, I'm sure as a grandparent, there's zero feeling of one grandchild over the other. It's really an expression of heart of like, I love everybody, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. as you say, is kind of like God's heart. Yes, <laughs> and that's a lot of love, a lot of differences in each one. Yeah, it's great. Well, that's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us today. And I really encourage all our listeners to get oh. your book, Tales of Love and Service, Stories from the Heart by John Gehring. And John it's on W. Gehring, because there is a, a, another oh. author, John Gehring. So, okay. okay. A Thank religious you. author, too. <laughs> John W. Gehring. And it's on Amazon. And I'm sure they'll be happy to deliver it by tomorrow. So... <laughs> <laughs> Everyone, thank you very much for listening, and I'm glad to be part of your extended family. Oh, thank you so much, John. Appreciate it. Thank you.